Check one, two. Is that mic on? Check one, two. Can you hear Pastor Brent? Hey, we are there. Well, again, it is so great to be with you all today as we jump into God's Word. We are continuing our series uh, entitled All In. And uh, this is actually the, the conclusion of our series, All In. And I am excited about the word God gave me this week. I was, I was preparing it and praying about it. And I was like, oh, God, God you got me jazzed about this one. And I'm, I'm so excited about what the Lord's going to bring us. Now, um, several years ago, I used to be uh, doing youth ministry. And uh, we would take the students in the youth ministry during the summer to Amazon Pool in Eugene. And, uh, and just kind of have a, a time of hanging out at Amazon Pool. Everybody's playing and splashing and having fun. And uh, it's a crowded, crowded pool. That place is crazy in the summer. It's insane. Um, and we, we, we noticed one time when we were there that... Uh, the high dive, the platform, that's like the center of all the activity because you got all the guys that are really trying to ham it up to really be crazy, you know, jumping off, doing insane things off that. And there's the high dive and things. And so the center of attention is really there. And uh, there was this little boy, he was probably eight to 10 years old that was in line for the platform. And I saw him go up there and I could tell he was sweating bullets. He was concerned about this jump. And so it, you wait in line. It's a long line that goes down the steps for the platform. And he waited in line all the way till it was his turn. And he walked out to the edge about this fast. And he got to the edge. And then he started doing Hail Marys and, and like all kinds of things like that. And you could tell he was very concerned. And the people in line started to get impatient because they've been waiting and waiting for their turn. And this kid is not going. And so he thought about it a long time. Finally, the lifeguard said, do you want to just kind of take... Take your time and think about it. And he's like, yes. And so he went back and kind of the walk of shame down the step ladder, back down the steps. You know, he has to go the opposite way of everybody else. And he got back down to the bottom. And a little bit later in the day, I look up and there he is in line again. And he does the walk out to the end of the diving board or the platform. And this thing's tall. It's like 20 feet off the water. I, have, I don't question the concern about this, you know, and he stands there and he goes through the same thing and walks back down the steps. And we're, oh. And so now we're getting emotionally invested in this little guy to do this jump, you know? We're just sitting around the edge like, you can do this, man. And the day goes on, and finally it's, uh, it's the end of the day, and all of the, uh, the uh, lifeguards blow their whistles, you know, everybody at once, everybody out of the pool, and everybody gets out of the pool, except this kid's still in line, and he's the last one for the platform. And so everybody gets out of the pool, and there are literally hundreds of people around the pool that don't leave, they don't go to the locker room, they gather around the diving pool. Hundreds. I'm not joking. The entire group of people was like, we don't have anywhere to go. We want to see this guy do this. And so he's up there by himself, this crowd around him. And he thinks about it. And then he reaches back for the railing and kind of walks himself back. And we're like, oh. And you can hear the crowd do the, oh. Because every once in a while he'll get really close and kind of bend his knees. And we're like, oh. And everybody's going, jump, 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 jump. You can feel the energy. And he'll step back, oh. And then the crowd... He is up there, I'm not kidding you, probably five to ten minutes, and we're just waiting on the edge of the pool, waiting. And finally this moment comes where the lifeguard's talking to him, and he's just kind of having these conversations, and he very anticlimactically kind of bends his knees and kind of goes, and down off the platform he goes, he lands in the water, and he lived too, it was a great story. And the place went bananas. I mean, you would have thought we were at a Super Bowl game or something. People were cheering. Towels were being thrown in the air, slapping each other on the back with strangers. It was emotional. We were like, we did it! It was so cool to watch. And it was just this, this moment of leaping. It was so fun to be a part of it. I was like, that was so cool for that guy. And maybe he does it every year and he just knows he gets the attention. I don't know. But uh, 
it was so cool to be on that, in that moment with him and to see this leap. And we all have in life these leaping moments where it's the edge and there's no like halfway. It's you're all in or not. You can't kind of go off the high dive. You're either doing it or you're not, right? And there's these moments where you're, maybe your stomach goes up into your throat as you're doing this moment. Maybe it's a big purchase like a home you're buying. You can't kind of purchase a home, right? Or maybe it's, maybe it's a car purchase. Or maybe you're taking a big, making a big decision in your educational journey. Or maybe you're taking the plunge in a relationship. You can't kind of marry someone. Right? There's these big moments. There's, there's a big shift in career. Maybe you're quitting a job or moving to another opportunity. And there's these moments where it's not, you just aren't dipping your toe in the water. You're going all in. And so in this series, we've been talking about going all in with Jesus. That moment of stepping out, saying, I'm going to go all in. I'm committing to it. It's not a little bit. It's not, I'm testing out with you, Jesus, or this thing. I'm going to commit myself to following you full in. And this series has been challenging because, uh, To be honest, in Christianity, in Christendom, there's really two groups that I would would separate. There are Christian adherents, meaning that when the census comes around, you've marked the box that I'm a Christian. And then there are disciples. There are adherents and there are disciples. There are people that check the box on a census form. And then there's those who live elementally transformative lives. That live lives that are completely sold out for Christ. That are not just going through the motions, but are actually living lives of discipleship. And so, the question I want to ask you this morning is, what would happen if we did three things? And they're going to sound bizarre, and I'm glad they will, because hopefully it'll help you remember them, okay? What would happen if we do three things? And that's this. Crunch the numbers, throw a barbecue, and tailgate Jesus. Crunch the numbers, throw a barbecue, and tailgate Jesus, okay? So to give more, hopefully, explanation to what I'm thinking here, let's back up. A couple weeks ago, I talked about Peter walking on the water a little bit, and Jesus doing the rest, right? And, and, and Peter's story, I gave some background of his story, he was a fisherman. Well, we're going to go back to the beginning of that story where Jesus first meets Peter. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 tells the story of their encounter and when Jesus calls Peter. So it says this, On the first day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, Repairing their nets and he called them to come too, and they immediately followed him leaving the boat and their father behind This has always been a story that has completely baffled me I don't know if it has baffled you But here comes jesus walking down the beach in his white bathrobe and his pageant sash blue sash with his flowing strawberry blonde locks We know what jesus looked like, right? And he turns to, to Peter and Andrew and says, come follow me. And they're like, okay. And they just walk away from their lives. And then he comes up to, to, to uh, John and, 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 and he says the same thing. He says, come follow me. And he walks away from his own family, his father. He leaves him standing there and says, I'm going to follow Jesus. How do, is Jesus that charismatic? They're just like, this guy has got something going on. 
Now, to be honest, from my understanding, from my reading, as I read the book of Luke, I think Jesus had had a prior encounter with, with Matthew before this event. But, uh, but there's something that happened here that I think we need to understand uh, culturally that will help us get a better grasp of what's happen, happening here. You see, um, in the first century Palestine... The way the, the Jewish people operated was you didn't have a little bambino, cute little baby, and then it grew up and you like off to preschool with you. And then when they were done with preschool, you say off to kindergarten and first grade and so on. There was no school like that. Instead of sending their kids to school, do you know where they sent them? To the synagogue. They sent their kids to synagogue, and at synagogue, they would study Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Torah means teaching or instruction or the way. And they would not, they would, they would sit there from, from, from a young age all the way up to about age six studying Torah. And by the age six, kids at this time, at this age would be able to memorize and recite the first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch. First five books. That's impressive. Now, Keep in mind, they aren't studying all the other things our kids are studying these days in schools with geography and, and geometry and all the other things, but they're focused entirely on Torah. But by, the, by age six, they could recite the Pentateuch. And so they study Torah, and then at the end of that time, when they're about age six, they have an evaluation. And after that evaluation, they say, okay, listen, you've been going to school, but while you've been going to school, you've been uh, also... Uh, been, you've been also been uh, going to, to uh, apprenticing with your family business. You've been going to school, and then when you come home, you work with your mom or your dad with the, with the family business. And so um, when they're six, they take this test, and they say, we are going to take the very best of the best to the next level. But the rest of you, we encourage you to go learn your family business. You've been apprenticing. Take that on. And so they take the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and they move them to the next level of study. And then for the next years of their life, they study the rest of the Torah, all of what is our Old Testament, memorizing it until the age of about 12 to 14. And there's three different stages of cuts that they make. The best of the best, then the best of the best, then the best of the best. And so by age 14, they will have the entire Old Testament memorized. Incredible. But then they take a test and they say, okay, you've done a great job. You can now go and meet a rabbi and and interview with a rabbi. And if they feel you are worthy, they feel you are good enough, they can ask you to come follow them. And so the best of the best of the best of the best could then become disciples of a rabbi and follow them around, learning their teaching, taking their teaching upon themselves. Because the rabbi's goal is that these disciples then become little versions of me, sharing my teaching, my perspective on what Torah is, my perspective on on who God is to the world. And so this was an incredibly intelligent, top-notch people that were able to follow a rabbi. And so this really informs what's going on here when Jesus is walking along the beach and he comes up to to Peter, Andrew, James, and John and says, come follow me. And without hesitation, they drop their nets because they're doing what? Fishing. If they're fishing, are they the top-notch people? They're with their father? They were considered not able to be the people that could be disciples. That's not, that's not who we are. We wouldn't have a rabbi ask us to follow them. So for these guys that are working in this job, this is an opportunity like they've never seen before. So there was very little uh, hemming and hawing over that. They were like, yes, you got it. I'm in. And they followed Jesus because a rabbi, someone had come and chosen them and said, come, follow me, be my disciple. So for Peter, Andrew, James, and John, there was like no question. They immediately knew I'm going to follow them. I mean, imagine with me if, if, uh, 
If someone were to come to you, maybe a successful business person you really admire, someone you see on TV on Shark Tank or something, or maybe a musician or, or someone of immense power and, and intelligence and really looked up to so, in, in the social realm and they, they drove up in their limousine and rolled down the window and said, I want you to come join me. You're going to be on my inner, in my inner, inner circle. I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to make you such and such. That's the kind of feeling they had. They're like, I'm, I, want it, I want that. And so they followed Jesus. And, and so it was no question for these guys. But like Pastor Ty talked about last week, the ones that had difficulty with the call to discipleship were those of means. We have the rich young ruler. He had money. He had influence. He had power. Jesus calls him. He says, come follow me. And what does he do? He drags his feet. Oh, because he already has what he wants. There's nothing much to leave behind. The the cost is too high. You see, discipleship comes down to counting the cost. Is it worth it for me? And so the first thing I, I said was we need to crunch the numbers. We need to actually count the cost. Is discipleship truly worth it for me to follow Jesus? Am I willing to leave everything behind in order to follow Christ? And so it's time to crunch the numbers. You know, it's common in church circles to seek salvations, and I'm guilty of this myself, by saying, hey, you want to follow Jesus? Well, right on, chum, I'll tell you. It's just easy as one, two, three. All you got to do is say this little prayer after me. And, and, and it's this kind of sale of, it's so easy. But can I tell you this? We should not and we cannot mistake the simplicity of following Jesus for the cost of following Jesus. Sometimes we sell it so cheap. But listen to every time Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship, it's costly. And so, and so Jesus calls these disciples, he calls them to a deep walk. And Jesus, I, I, sometimes I think I read the stories of, of Fabio, Jesus walking down the beach calling disciples and thinking he's batting a thousand. He just walks in and people are like, oh, we'll follow, we'll follow. But Jesus didn't bat a thousand calling disciples. I didn't really think about that critically until I was really working on this message. Jesus had several instances when he called people to follow them and they were like, nah, no. Not going to happen. As a matter of fact, in the book of Luke, it tells a couple of accounts of Jesus calling other disciples who didn't say yes. Um, In Luke chapter 9, jump there with me, verse 57, it says, As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. He said to another person, Who said this? Jesus said it to another person. He said, what? Come, follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Three different discipleship opportunities, none saying yes. And I I think this story sounds, I don't know, have you ever read this and it feels really callous of Jesus? Like the guy wants to bury his father, let the man have a funeral. Like, doesn't that sound like really hard-hearted of Jesus? But um, it's interesting, as I studied this, it's in, because scholars actually have several perspectives on what was going on here. Um, some feel that this man may have been actually waiting to fulfill the duty as the oldest son, which was to bury his father. And if he was the oldest son, he would have wanted to be near him in order to obtain his inheritance. 
He knew that the right of the oldest is to get the inheritance. And so there's a good chance of that. It could have also been um, tradition at the time was when someone died, you took their body, you placed it in a tomb for a year. And after a year, you go back and you collect the bones and then you place those on a family plot. And so there was this tradition of waiting a year. And so we don't know if this guy was possibly saying, Jesus, give me a year. I'm kind of busy right now. But when this is done, you got me. But here's the situation. In any event, no matter what, Jesus' answer is making it clear that this man's request would have been putting tradition or his own desires ahead of serving Jesus. He was, he was saying, I've got important tasks, but as soon as those are cleared off my schedule, Jesus, I am all yours. As soon as I take care of these really important things, the, the tyranny of the, of the, of the, uh, just the, 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 all the things going on, the, the chaos, and, and I've always got something else to do. Can I tell you that there will always be another task? If we're putting Jesus off, there will always be another task. If we're putting Jesus off, there will always be something else that's important coming up. Another crisis, another thing that's going to happen. It's never going to be enough if we just say, when things calm down, then Jesus, I'll follow. I'm starting a business. I need to finish my education. I have, I have relationships I really need to focus on and get in the right place first. I have kids that are young or in school or I have, uh, I have to get them out of the house or, or uh, um, I'm, I'm focusing on my retirement right now. I've got a lot of financial things I need to focus on. Let me tell you this. If you are looking for an excuse, you will always find one. But on the flip side, if you're always looking for an opportunity, you will always find one. If we're always looking for excuses, we'll always find one. But if we're always looking for an opportunity, we'll always find one. We need to count the cost. We need to count the cost. Is Jesus worth everything? Crunch the numbers. Is he worth everything? And this is not an easy decision. Then I hope that you wouldn't take it easy as an easy decision. I want you to wrestle with this. So the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John actually has a really similar uh, mirror story that happens 800 years before in the Old Testament. So with, you, with, with your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. In the book of 1 Kings, there's another story that's told about a prophet named Elijah. I'm going to grab my water here. Now, Elijah had been serving God for many years. Elijah had seen incredible things happen. He he basically saved the life of a widow who was ready to make her last meal. And through miracle of God, uh, she, she was supplied for. Um, he had the standoff at high noon at, uh, at Mount Carmel against the, the prophets of Baal. And God, God answered in fire. A fireball came down, like, like just like a cool thing of fire. I don't know. It was amazing. And uh, all these things happened. But Elijah was getting up there in age and he was looking for who would come next. And so in 1 Kings 19, it tells the story of Elijah calling Elisha, which they, they decided to get similar names to confuse us all the time. So it says this, So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. Now, I should have said when we were reading the story of Jesus calling these other disciples, you're going to see some parallels here that are incredible. I don't know if scholarly-wise we can point and say there's a reason for that, but in Brent's Dictionary of Theology, yes, 
I think we can point at this. But, but here, here's what it says. It says, so he found him plowing a field. And there were 12 teams of oxen in the field. And Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. And Elijah went over to him. And he threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Which would be a really weird thing in today's society. Like, can you imagine you're like walking through Walmart. Someone throws their coat on you and walks off. That would be... That'd be uncomfortable. That would be a weird thing. But then it was more normative, I guess. So he throws his cloak over his shoulders and walks away. Elisha left the oxen standing there. He ran after Elijah and said to him, First let me go and kiss my my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. And Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen, and he slaughtered them. And he used the wood from the plow to build a fire and to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. And then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Interesting story here. If we were to page between these parallels between Elisha and Jesus calling these three disciples that wouldn't follow in in Luke chapter 9, I find there's a lot of interesting similarities. First of all, Elisha was plowing in the field, it says. He was plowing in the field. And Jesus says to the disciples, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not worthy of being my disciple. Uh, also, there's just something else that's not in, in, in the New Testament that we talked about yet, but the throwing of the cloak over the shoulders was symptomatic. It was symptomatic of taking on someone's yoke or calling. And so when, when a rabbi would give their teaching, it was actually called their yoke. It was the, the, the way they wanted people to understand their interpretation of scriptures. It was their teaching. And so um, in the same way, when Elijah put the, the cloak around Elisha's shoulders, it was taking on his mantle as well as his anointing. It was a symbol of taking on that anointing. But that's another time, another place. But then Elisha says to Elijah, First let me kiss my mother and father goodbye. And the same way, look in Luke chapter 9. What does one of the disciples Jesus call say? Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. But Elijah responds to him and says, Think about the weight of just what I've done to you. Think about the weight of what I've just done. Because he knew, and going back to saying goodbye to his mom and dad, there's going to be that emotional tie. There's going to be that, well, I've got a big thing going here. And he said, remember the weight of the calling you've received. He challenged him in this. And that's when Elisha just said, that's it. We're having a barbecue. And so he went and took all the, the, the farming implements. He took the plows and he broke them up into pieces and he built a barbecue. And then he, and he slaughtered the oxen and he made oxen burgers. And everybody gathered around. He gathered the community around. And they had a big old grilling party and they had this barbecue. Um, and, and this act that Elisha had of burning the plows, of, of, uh, of slaughtering the oxen, he was making a statement. He was saying, from this moment forward, there is no turning back. I can't go back to the plow. Jesus said, anyone who turns back and grabs the plow is not worthy of the calling. Elisha is saying, the plow is no longer an option anymore. I can't say when things get difficult. I can't say when things get tough because the government's against me. The, the, king, the queen is trying to kill me. There's prophets from other uh, false gods that want me dead. Now I want to go back to just being a farmer. No, I can't. It's gone. All of that is gone. He was, he was literally ending the means of returning back. There's no turning back, no quitting. It was more than just turning in his two-week notice to his dad. It was more than just uh, saying there's, there's, there's another option, but he was saying there is no plan B. It's all plan A. I'm going all in for this. Um, it's interesting when Cortez came with the conquistadors to the new world in 1519. He brought with him 11 ships. And on those 11 ships, he had 13 horses. He had 110 sailors and 553 soldiers. And when they all stepped foot on land, do you know what he told them to do? Burn the ships. 
burn the ships. We aren't going home until we achieve our, our objective. And now I'm not talking, I'm not going to speak to colonialism right now and the problems with that. I'm talking about their commitment to their cause was so great. Their commitment to the cause was so great. Return is not an option. Retreat is not an option. If things get difficult, we've already charted our course. We know where we're going. We've committed to this course. Elisha burned the plowing equipment. And this is his way of burning the ships. He couldn't go back because he destroyed his means of return. And so he literally cooked his old way of life and he ate it for dinner. He cooked it and ate it for dinner. So many people in our world, though, and so many Christians are living their plan B because plan A got too risky. Because plan A got too costly. Because plan A got too difficult. And they're living in a plan B. For some of us, it's time to have a barbecue. For some of us, it's time to remove the means by which we can go back. We've been leaving that option out there. I could always go back. I could always go back. The other day, I was in a shopping center, and uh, on the back of a car, I saw a bumper sticker I thought was funny. It said, do you follow Jesus this closely? And it made me laugh. (laughs) You see, when we hear the word disciple... I think we have an automatic reaction to think it's like a student, like someone that's learning information from someone else. And that's partially true, but disciple actually goes a whole lot deeper than that. A disciple is someone that says, I don't only want to know what you know, but I want to do what you do. I want to be who you are. A disciple wants to be like the rabbi and do what the rabbi does. I want to walk in your ways. You see, disciples would follow their rabbi Everywhere they went, they sit down, I sit down. It's like the worst game of Simon Says ever where you do every little thing they do. Doesn't matter. Wherever they go, I go. You're there, I'm there. And and, and as first century disciples, they would follow these rabbis around the countryside. That means they were traveling hot, dusty, desert roads. And whatever your rabbi walked through, as the principal means of transportation was not a car, it was an animal. And whatever your rabbi walked through, you walked through. And whatever... They stepped in, you stepped in. Whatever dust they kicked up is now on you. It's now in your clothes. It's now in your hair. It's now in your beard. And uh, 200 years before Jesus' birth, the rabbis started to build a collection of teachings of, and rabbinic thought that's actually still used today called the Mishnah. And it forms the core of Jewish belief. And in the Mishnah, one of the passages called Avat 1-4 is still commonly repeated in schools today. And that verse says this, essentially translated into English, is, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Meaning you are following your rabbi so closely. You are following him so closely that the very dust that he kicks up lands on me. His anointing falls on me. I become more like him. Elisha burned the plow. He ate the oxen and then he followed Elijah so closely that when Elijah was taken up into heaven, he was able to catch his cloak and take on a double anointing of the power of God. May I be following you that closely that though there are 50 other prophets close by, but they didn't follow closely enough to get that full anointing. May I follow Christ so closely that his dust is evident on me, that I would be covered in the dust of the rabbi. So this morning, my challenge is those three things. Crunch the numbers. Throw a barbecue. Tailgate Jesus. What would happen? 
What would happen in our individual lives? What would happen in us as a church if we did these things? You know, maybe for you, you're at a point you need to crunch the numbers. You're counting the cost. Because this is a commitment beyond just the emotion or the convenience of it. Can I tell you that the convenience of Jesus seems really nice. Oh, a get out of jail free card. I don't want to go to hell. That sounds really nice to not have those things happen. But Jesus isn't a convenience. It is a literal laying down of one's own life to follow him. To take up your own cross to follow him. Is it worth the cost? I encourage you to to weigh that. Because I don't want it to be cheap. Because grace is not cheap. If you're still wavering, if you're still wrestling with God, can I tell you, keep wrestling. In a moment, we're going to pray together, but I don't want you just to raise your hand because, wow, I just, I just, I just feel like a lot of emotion or I just, don't, I just don't want to go to hell. I want you to really wrestle with this and say, is following Jesus worth everything? I can make you a promise, though. It is worth everything. He will change your world. He will change your eternity. It is worth everything in this world to follow him. But wrestle with it, grapple with it, and come to the decision, am I willing to follow him with everything? Don't cheapen the decision. Don't do it just to alleviate guilt. Make repentance a step that you are ready to take. So right now, let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes together, church. This morning... If you have counted the cost you say Jesus is worth everything I'm willing to leave it all behind for the sake of Christ life livelihood even family Christ is more and you've weighed that in your heart and you know you're ready to make that decision that's where you're at. Again, if you are not there, if you're still wrestling with it, wrestle, engage with it. Let Jesus work in your heart, but I do not want you to raise your hand for just the moment. I want you to raise your hand because you know this is your time to follow Christ. So in this room, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to make that commitment, I'm ready to count the cost and follow Jesus. Raise your hand. Raise it high. Yeah, thank you. Who else? Who else? Thank you. Thank you. Put your hands down. Church, repeat this prayer after me. And like I said many times before, this prayer, it's a statement of a heart condition. It's not magic words, but it's a declaration of faith and a commitment to Christ as our Lord. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and dying for me that I could have eternal life. I lay my life down so that I could have life with you. I give you my heart, and I make you my king. In your name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. For those that you are, that are wrestling, still wrestling, I encourage you to still wrestle. Before we go forward, I want to offer this too. For those of us that it's time to have a barbecue. Maybe you've been holding on to things in the other hand. You're like, if this doesn't work out, I've always got plan B and it's time to let go, to the, uh, let go of the plan B. Go on, all in for Jesus. There may be some literal burning th- of things from the old life you need to get rid of. 
I remember in summer camp days, we'd have CD breaking and burning parties and things where we were getting rid of uh, all the sinful stuff from our life. There may be some books or magazines or things you need to actually burn to get rid of. There may be relationships that have been dragging you down. You've been holding on to them and they've been unhealthy and you're holding on to them and it's time to burn the ship. There may be paraphernalia that needs to be destroyed. What needs to be burned? In the book of Acts, it tells the story of people that were practicing sorcery. And they turned to Christ and they had all of these books and scrolls on sorcery and they were really valuable. They were collector edition, first edition. They were really rare books on sorcery. But do you know what they did with them? They burned them. And, and the book of Acts said that, that those scrolls were worth 50,000 drachma. And I was like, 50,000 drachma, that's so much. I have no idea how much that was. Turns out a drachma is worth an entire day's wages. And if you take out 50,000 drachma, that's 138 years worth of wages. Over $3 million worth of wages that they burned. They said, we aren't going back to it. We're not passing it on. We're not going to sell it on Facebook Marketplace. We're getting rid of it. It's time to burn the ships. Maybe for you, there's something literally that needs to happen to say, I'm going to go all in for Jesus. Finally, it may be that you need to follow Jesus more closely. Maybe you've treated your relationship with Jesus like my cat treats its relationship with me, which is a relationship of reasonable proximity. We're in the same room. That's good enough for it. We're sharing the same space, but but let's not get too close. Let's keep a convenient distance. It's time to be unapologetic followers of Jesus, to be brash in our following of Jesus. Wherever he leads, I am going to go. I'm not holding anything back. I'm going to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus told his followers to come follow me, but he didn't tell them the destination. He didn't tell them where they were going, but uh, he just told people to come and they followed. So this morning, let's not just buy into following Jesus. Let's sell out for following Jesus. Amen. Let me pray over us church as we get ready to dismiss this morning. Father, I pray for these followers. Christ in this room, those that have said, we have made the decision, we've counted the cost, but perhaps they're holding on to something else from the old life that's still there, some part of the old dead nature that wants to hold on, I pray God that we would burn it, that it would be gone and there would be no means of returning to the old life. And for those that have been following Jesus at a a distance that feels comfortable, a distance that doesn't feel too, uh, too, too committal, Lord, I pray that we would push through and be unapologetic followers of Jesus. Wherever you lead, we will follow. We don't know maybe the ultimate destination, but we know that we are following in the dust of the rabbi, the one who called us. And God, I pray that we would live brash followers of Jesus' lives, that we would let your light shine through us as the world would see that they would see our good works and glorify the Father that's in heaven. And we thank you for it, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but it's so easy to, uh, it's kind of funny actually, to see the issues that you have in other people. And for some reason we want grace for ourselves, but we don't want grace for other people. You guys know what I'm talking about? I'll give you some illustrations. Every Tuesday I drive to school on I-5. And every Tuesday, it's like clockwork. I'll get on I-5, and a semi will be going like 62 miles an hour in the slow lane, and somebody will go to pass them, and they'll go 63 miles an hour in the fast lane. And I'm like right behind them, like revving my engines, like I'm reading the bumper sticker. And I'm like, don't honk the horn, don't honk the horn. I'm like, go, 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 go. And they don't go, and I get frustrated. But it's funny, when they when they move out of the way and I'm in the lead, you just kind of drift off in your mind. Next thing I know, I'm going like 65 miles an hour. It's just, it's just kind of funny. Or... My wife makes fun of me, you know, I'll start diets like this year I decided to do keto and you know, for the first couple of days I'm doing good and then I'm like, hey, I'm doing keto, but that chocolate cake, I'm going to have a piece of that. 
It's totally cool. Hey, uh, I'm on keto, but some, somebody's having pizza for lunch, so I, I don't want to be rude. I'm just going to eat some pizza and stuff. And my wife makes fun because then I'll, I'll go to weigh myself the next week, and I've lost no weight. She's like, what you're doing is worse than either or. Like, you're robbing yourself of good food most of the week, and you still feel bad, and you're still not losing weight. She's like, well, what is this getting you? You might as well either just eat the bad food all the time or stop. And I'm like, you just, you just don't get it. It's passion-based. You don't understand. Um, what's for dinner? I'll let you know if I'm on keto today or not. Um, and then lastly, it's, man, it's so easy in our lives to do this with finances. And I, I'm using that as a segue because I'm not good to invite our ushers to stand up. Um, we had our first Dave Ramsey class last Wednesday. Um, if you haven't taken that, I'd encourage you to do it. Tom's doing an awesome job. But uh, one of the first things that Dave said in the class on his, uh, on his video was, hey, you've already tried your way, try my way. And if it doesn't work for you, you can, you can always go back. And my wife, after the class came to me and she's like, Ty, I'm, I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, why? She's like, we've taken this class like three times now. And we do really good for about six months until we're just almost out of debt. And then we kind of relax and you, you go buy something. And then we're right back a year later paying off debt. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. That's true. And so I was thinking about it and why that happens is it's so easy in moments of inspiration and passion to make these big claims. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Or, um, you know, we get really excited. But as the weeks progress, you know, it's not, it's not always hard things that stop us. It's actually sometimes the opposite. It's those easy things. It's, yeah, I could go to the gym this morning or I could sleep in. You know, I could, I could get up and pray. Or I could just, you know, watch some TV. I could read my Bible right now, but what did they just drop on Netflix? It's not always these hard things that, that cause us to drift, but it's just the, the easiness and the everyday of life. And so as we're getting ready to take this offering, I just want to encourage you on your connect card, let's be brutally honest with each other. I'm going to fill one out too and, and, and I'll share what I'm going to share. But um, let's write down like where in my life am I being mediocre? Where in my life have I made big claims but I'm not following through? Where in my life do I need to host a barbecue? And remember, they serve steak. They didn't serve no chicken. It's important. Remember that. Um, but... Where in our life do we need to reestablish this thing saying, God, let my yes be my yes and my no be my no. I don't want to make a, a momentary inspirational speech. I don't want to make a decision out of passion, but God, I want to be diligent. I want to be faithful. I want to be obedient because that's the kind of life that God blesses. The Bible says that, that God prefers obedience to sacrifice. That's exactly what Pastor Brent was talking about. He's saying he doesn't want these, these short-term, momentary, oh, I, I feel inspired, here's, you know, a huge thing. He's saying, I want that day-by-day, little-by-little, obedient life. So together, let's write in our Connect card what we're going to stop being mediocre in and be all in for Jesus. As the ushers come up, let's go ahead and take our tithes and offerings. God, right now, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for what you do. God, I thank you that you have so much grace for us, God, in our shortcomings. I pray that we wouldn't take advantage of that grace, but that grace would cause us to have a more affection for you. It caused us to, to turn that passion into obedience, to turn that passion into faithfulness, to turn that passion to the day by day, the little by little. God, we thank you for who you are and what you continually do in our lives.
your name we pray. Amen. You're calling me deeper, deeper still. You're calling me deeper.